words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, everybody. Good to see you again. Good to worship with you today. It's great to meditate on the word of God together. This is something that Christians have done together for as long as there have been Christians. The scriptures have been read publicly aloud whenever we have assembled to worship. And we didn't even invent this practice. We took it over from Jewish synagogue worship. So this is a practice that goes all the way down among the people of God. And we see Jesus himself in our reading today teaching the word of God with power, with authority in the synagogue. Presumably either he or someone else had read the word of God from a scroll, either in Hebrew or Aramaic, before he taught. We even see Jesus explicitly opening the scroll of Isaiah and reading it as he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4. This practice is important on a number of levels, but the one that I've been thinking about all week in particular because of this passage is because there's never been one generation in which the public reading of scripture has not cut against the grain of cultural expectations and social propriety. It has always provoked a reaction that's like, what? Every generation has been shocked, scandalized, perplexed, or just downright confused by some aspect or other of the scriptures as they are read publicly in the assembly as Christians gather. And that cultural tension between the text of scripture and the culture in which it is heard is something that theologians call an ordinary providence. It's a way that God enacts his will among a particular people in a particular time. When people unfamiliar with or scandalized by the cultural background or the ethical demands of a text hear it and are provoked by it, it's a clue that God is getting ready to do something, some important work of illumination among the hearers of the word. Or it's a clue that God is getting, to, getting ready to break down some cultural stronghold that is standing in the way of the gospel breaking through and changing and transforming things. And it's the agency of the word as it is read and preached and expounded by which these processes are begun. Just looking at this reading today, there are a whole number of things that this text is taking for granted that many of us in this room, myself included, if I'm being honest, are saying, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Or at a maximum, we're saying, I know exactly what to do with that. I don't believe any of that at all. The strangeness of this passage is even intensified by Mark's characteristically terse and breathless way of writing. If you have friends who've never read the Bible, but they're like into the Marvel universe, give them Mark's gospel to start with, you know? Because his gospel, like, in his gospel, Jesus is like the action hero, right? ETW, if your friends are like philosophers, give them John. If they're lawyers, you can give them Matthew. If they're physicians, you can give them Luke. Just, you know, pro tip. <laughs> but Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, Jesus says relatively little, especially like in comparison with the other gospels. But he races from place to place, and he creates sign after sign of the kingdom of God that his ministry is birthing in the world. And there's this little word immediately, it's twice in our passage today, eutheos. It's like the first century equivalent of a quick cut in an action blockbuster. Mark's narration here is challenging because it's also, in another way that it's challenging, in addition to being, hey, it's really weird. But another way uh, that it's challenging is it's like hearing one side of a phone conversation. There's just a ton of background information that we're missing that Mark's presupposing that his readers will know. As modern readers, we just don't have it. The biblical scholar John Walton helpfully says that these texts were written for us, but they were not written to us. 
They're participating in a cultural river that's shared by first century Greeks and Romans and Jews, but not us. And so we read, as we pick up this passage, like it's the most normal thing in the world that there's a man hanging out in Capernaum with an unclean spirit. Like, what does that mean, unclean spirit? Is that just like another word for evil spirit or demon? Yes, and? I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. And then note this, that the unclean spirit is not simply oppressing this man or causing problems for this man. The unclean spirit has possessed him. It is inhabiting him, controlling him, to the extent that it speaks for him. And the spirit speaks in the first person plural, not the first person singular for the most part, which is in itself a little bit terrifying, if I'm being honest. What it seems to presuppose is a kind of shared consciousness in the spirit realm for these unclean spirits. That's a little bit terrifying. And this man, driven by the unclean spirit, runs into the synagogue where Jesus is teaching and confesses Jesus' identity in front of the whole congregation. Now, how do you think we might respond if a similarly situated guy was to run in here and start raving? Maybe we'd do a little bit better today, right? I mean, like, we're kind of primed for it. If it were to happen, we'd be like, all right, this is a lot, but we might know, you know, how to handle it. But let's just say it's like an ordinary Sunday, an ordinary time, right? Somebody runs in the room and starts raving, we might be a little disturbed and distressed by that. But Jesus is not bothered at all. He completely maintains his composure. He knows exactly what's going on. He's anticipated this moment. And so when it happens, he knows exactly how to respond. So what you have to understand about Mark's gospel here is that another way in which the comparison to the superhero, like Jesus to the superhero, is not an opposite, is that... Um, Jesus has a secret identity in the Gospel of Mark, okay? So, like, the whole time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is, um, almost the whole time, Jesus is incognito. There's a couple of minutes, like, in the, in the narrative where uh, his identity gets revealed. Like, one of them is the confession of Peter, right? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And the, and the disciples say, well, some say Elijah, some say the prophet Isaiah. And, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the Messiah. And he goes, shh. Don't tell anybody. What? Why? Right? Look, shouldn't everybody know that you're the Messiah? But it's not a time. For Mark's gospel, the timing is everything. So for the whole gospel, Jesus has this secret identity. He's the Messiah. But the first time that Jesus' messianic identity is confessed, it's right here by this unclean spirit. So this is all being read, you know, during the season of, of Epiphany. This is literally the weirdest Epiphany ever. Right? The demons are like, I mean, the demons are not happy about this fact. But they are confessing the identity of Jesus, the first ones to confess the identity of Jesus, and the first people to manifest his identity before the world. In fact, this demoniac is running into the synagogue in front of the whole congregation assembled to hear the word proclaimed and confessing the identity of Jesus to all of these people. So it is a revelation of Jesus' identity, just a really weird one. So it's clear, too, another thing that Mark is kind of presupposing his background knowledge is that this wicked spirit, this unclean spirit, has access to, to knowledge that transcends ordinary mortal ways of knowing, even though it's obviously tremendously unhappy about what it knows. So what I'm saying is Mark is working with a lot of background knowledge of the spiritual realm that we don't necessarily have access to. And a big reason for that is because in the West, we cannot decide if we believe if any of this stuff is actually real. Right, we're sort of fascinated with it. People are fascinated with the eerie and the weird and the uncanny, the ghostly. Kids are always asking me, Dad, do you believe in ghosts? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe. 
you know? Like, I'm fascinated, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I, and it's not part of my shared public knowledge, right? And that's true for most people in the West. It's not part of our shared kind of public, you know, publicly held store of facts, right? Uh, in private, kind of investigate that, do whatever you want. But we don't have, like, a shared framework like Mark is presupposing in his audience and the people that he's writing to. In our culture, this stuff belongs firmly in the realm of private speculation, not shared public fact. But I've taught at seminary some pastors from developing nations, and they tell me that they're perfectly at home with this sort of encounter. They've all had encounters like this. In fact, some of them have had literally this encounter, like they're preaching, and somebody runs up and starts screaming who's possessed by a demon in their congregation, and they have to exorcise the demon as they are, like, just midstream preaching, oh, by the way, like, come out in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit departs. And, and they're like, this is normal. This is, like, you don't have this? You know? Um, there's an amusing story told by the Kenyan theologian John Mabiti. Uh, there's a beloved pastor in this village, and his congregation and diocese sacrificially raise all of this money to send him to Europe to study theology. So he spends many years there, and he even accomplishes a PhD in theology. And so he comes back to his village. He's overjoyed to share everything he's learned with his, with his village. He's learned all the biblical languages. He's learned the theology of Bultmann and Bart, Bonhoeffer, Brunner, Buber, Kohn, Kuhn, Bultmann, Niebuhr, and Tillich, all of these incredible array of modern theologians. And there's this giant celebration when he returns. Everyone in the village turns up. And suddenly there's a shriek, and his older sister falls to the ground. And he urges the villagers, we got to get her to a hospital. And the villagers say, the nearest hospital is like 100 kilometers away. There's not a lot of buses. We don't have a car. And the chief says, dude, she's possessed. Hospitals will not cure her. You've been studying theology overseas for 10 years. Now help your sister. She's troubled by the spirit of her aunt. And he looks around helplessly and says, but Rudolf Bultmann is demythologized demon possession. <laughs> the point here, to be clear, I want to be clear about this, it's not about whether or not the sister actually needs a doctor or an exorcist. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the incredulity which has percolated in Western culture for a couple hundred years about the demonic, which has made us utterly ignorant about it and helpless and powerless in the face of it when we actually encounter the work of evil spirits. It's about the arrogance of the modern developed West, which thinks that ancient peoples could not distinguish between ordinary maladies and mental illness and the agency of evil spirits. All you have to do is read a little bit further in Mark's gospel to realize Jesus is under no such delusion. Not every affliction is attributed to demons. In fact, right there, verse 29, next story, Jesus goes from the synagogue in Capernaum to the house of Simon and Andrew, and he cures Simon's mother-in-law where she's laying in bed with a fever. There's no attribution of demonic agency to this fever. She's just simply very sick and on the point of death. And Jesus cures her. He doesn't exercise her. You understand? So Jesus, and then subsequently the disciples, can discern between somebody being afflicted between profound physical or mental distress and demonic oppression or possession. The conviction of the New Testament, though, is that there is an unseen realm in addition to what we can see, feel, taste, and touch. And it's within this realm of spirit that there are malign members of the heavenly host that are in rebellion against the will of God. There are in the New Testament these unmistakable descriptions of evil spiritual beings that are conscious, intelligent, 
personal and agentic. The fervent conviction of these texts is that these spirits are wholly malign. They are dedicated to the destruction of God's creation and especially to the degradation of the image of God in human beings. Any benefit that they confer on people who appeal to them or worship them or enter into bargains with them is always outstripped by what is taken from those people in return. The house always wins in those exchanges. As members of the heavenly host, they are more exalted in the hierarchy of being than we are. They are smarter than us. They are more powerful than us. They are more cunning than us. And they seek our destruction, our despair, and our damnation. So why do we not live terrified every moment that they will invade us, that they will take us over, that they will possess us? What's amazing to me about the New Testament is that although the reality of these spirits is never denied or downplayed, and they're very clear, the authors of the New Testament, they're very clear that we should never diminish their power. We should never mess with them. We should never appeal to them or worship them in any way. We should know about their existence and about their influence over people and over world events. But these authors are not in any way concerned about being polluted or invaded by them. Why is that? It's because in Jesus, there is victory over them. The straightforward conviction of this passage today is that the reason that Jesus begins to be noticed and followed is because he has authority over these spirits. He can cast them out where no one was able to before. And as he liberates people from their malign influence, he restores them to health and to hope and to status within their society. I mentioned at the beginning of this service that one of the, one of the, um, the points that Mark kind of takes for granted is that they should be called unclean spirits. The biblical scholar Larry Hurtado argues that the meaning here is that these spirits defile the person and pollute the person. They render them unfit for fellowship among God's people and worship in the temple of God. And so the person who has been invaded or oppressed by these unclean spirits is now in the outer darkness. They are unable to come in and participate in the life of their community. They are isolated. They are taken out of their social context. They're alone. They're suffering. And so what Jesus does is he gently restores person who has been oppressed by these spirits into the community of the people of God. He restores them to status in the people of God. It is a liberation from the inside out. They are not only liberated from the malign influence of these spirits, they are liberated back into, they are restored back into, they are saved back into the community of the people of God and made able to worship and made able to fellowship with the company of the people of God. And later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives authority to the disciples over these unclean spirits. And through the gift of the Spirit, he gives this authority to the church in all ages. Let me tell you something. Historically and in the present moment, the reason why the church has gained ground in every society that it has gone to is because of the power to subdue evil spirits and to liberate people from their power and thrall and slavery. The great Egyptian bishop, Athanasius, told his congregation in Alexandria to make the sign of the cross and then to commit themselves fully to the lordship of Jesus expressed in that gesture. Because in it, all magic is stayed, all sorcery is confounded, all the idols are abandoned and deserted, and all senseless pleasure ceases as the eye of faith looks from earth to heaven. 
That is what the cross of Christ accomplishes as it goes forward into every society. It stays the hand of the enemy. It liberates people and saves people from demonic oppression. We have that power as a congregation in the name of Jesus Christ. That is a gift that has been given to us. Don't downplay the significance of that. Although we do recognize and confess the existence and the power and the activity of demons, we do not live in fear of them because Jesus has overcome them. There is in our cultural moment an increasing need, though, for Christians to know our demonology and to become equipped with the art of recognizing and combating their influence in our lives and in the lives of those around us. There's a great cultural amnesia that has swept through Western societies about the demonic over the past few centuries. And there's this kind of new fascination that has cropped up among younger generations with demons. Many scholars have noted this kind of increasing re-enchantment of Western societies. Typically speaking, you know, moving from disenchantment to re-enchantment seems like a good thing, right? But not all forms of re-enchantment are created equal. One of the scholars that I've been doing a deep dive on recently is a woman named Tara Isabella Burton. I think she's one of the most kind of penetrating and insightful cultural commentators out there right now. And she focuses a lot of her energy and attention on the revivification of interest in magic and witchcraft and occult practices among millennials and Gen Z folks. One of the most interesting findings in her research, to me anyway, is the connection between this increased interest in occult practices and the priorities of therapeutic self-actualization, self-creation, self-care, and even social justice. These are what we might think of as kind of secular priorities. And yet an increasing number of folks intuitively grasp that atheistic materialism cannot support these values. They need to be grounded in a spirituality that is capable of sustaining and expressing those priorities. I saw a meme a couple of years ago, though, that expresses the problem with a kind of unthinking and undiscerning approach to a spiritual foundation for those kinds of practices. There's this very crude clip art image of a happy little sparrow inside of a circle, and the sparrow is labeled spirituality. Right behind the sparrow, there was a giant hawk with the talons out, and it said, demons. We imagine ourselves, and we've been trained to imagine ourselves this way, as autonomous self-directing managers of our own spiritual journey. We pick and choose what works for us today. But the spiritual realm, the scriptures tell us very clearly, is not a grab bag of neutral resources to be assembled according to our felt needs. That's why John tells us in his first epistle, do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And as a priest in Christ's church, it is important for me to warn you not to become fascinated by or play around with the demonic. These are powerful forces that we do not fully understand. But the other side of this is just as important. Do not be afraid, because Christ has overcome the world. Christ has overcome all demons and overthrown the rulership of Satan himself. And so as we encounter colleagues and friends and neighbors that are fascinated by, you know, and immersed in pagan or occult practices, our fundamental disposition to them ought not to be fear. It ought to be the deepest compassion, the deepest prayer, the deepest concern for their souls. They do not understand what they are playing with. They are sheep without a shepherd. They are isolated. They are wounded. The demonic has taken them outside of the company of the fellowship of the saints. Many of them 
worse still, have been abused by authorities and trusted leaders in the church. So they don't know how to trust the church. The digital age has eroded social trust, too, to a degree that the only spirituality that's plausible and makes sense to many people is one that is kind of self-curated. If and when we encounter demonically oppressed or possessed persons, we are fundamentally encountering someone who was most basically created for relationship with God, with his people, with his church. And if that person were to be liberated from demonic influence, God would turn their gifts to the kingdom in such a way that we can barely imagine it right now. So the right response is always prayer. Prayer for wisdom about when and how to speak into these things. Prayer for illumination for the person with whom we are talking. Prayers for protection and for deliverance. The fact that we read this passage in Epiphany is incredibly important. This may be one of the weirdest confessions of Christ's identity in Scripture, but it's also, and for the same reason, one of the most significant. These spirits know who Christ is, and they know his almighty and everlasting power as the Holy One of Israel. They know that the time in which they may oppress and cause havoc on this earth is limited. And they know, too, this is important, that when the church wakens to the power that it has in Christ to recognize and combat the influence of evil spirits, that we have the authority to break their power and their influence in our own lives and in the lives on everyone that we love and are called to minister to. So do not be afraid of the demonic. Christ has overcome the world. In Christ, all demons have been overcome. And at the end of this age, they will be destroyed to the glory of God and the praise of his whole creation, which has been and is being liberated in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.